morning. I'm Chris Farrell, sitting in for Angela Davis. You're listening to NPR News, and I'm glad you could join us today. Okay, so picture this. Imagine going to the doctor's office and having a nurse take your weight, blood pressure, and the rest are your vital signs. I mean, we're, we're all used to that, right? And your doctor comes in, sets the computer, and pops up an instant diagnosis along with a detailed treatment plan delivered by an AI program in the time it took you to roll down your sleeve. Far-fetched? Not really. Artificial intelligence models are already being used to help clinicians read x-rays, diagnose cancers, and detect which patients are most likely to develop diabetes. There's no question that AI is a powerful tool that will only get better and stronger over time. Still, the use of AI in medicine raises many concerns. AI algorithms have been used to deny health insurance coverage. AI models could perpetuate racial and gender stereotypes in medical decisions. Any efficiencies AI brings to medicine could simply push doctors to see more patients in less time. Essentially, let's, you know, speed up the assembly line. So this hour, I'm talking about the promise and the pitfalls of artificial intelligence in healthcare with two physicians who research and develop AI models. And I want to hear from you. What questions do you have about artificial intelligence in medicine? And for those of you who work in healthcare, What's the what's the conversation around AI in the workplace, you know, in in around the, the proverbial water cooler? I mean, what are you hearing? What are you discussing? And if you're using AI already, tell us about your experience. The phone lines are open. Calls at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Or let's bring in our guests. Dr. Christopher Tignanelli is a trauma and critical care surgeon at M Health Fairview. He's also associate professor and scientific director of the program for clinical AI at the University of Minnesota Medical School. His research focuses on ways that artificial intelligence can be used to improve health worker decisions in the emergency room and other trauma health settings. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Sina. Abraham is a physician scientist and entrepreneur in health technology. He's CEO of Delphina in Rochester, Minnesota. He co-founded the company in 2021. It uses artificial intelligence to support healthier pregnancies for at-risk moms. He previously founded Hikma Health, a tech nonprofit that provides a mobile health record system for refugees, migrants, and other vulnerable populations. Thanks for joining us. I'm really glad you're with us. Thank you, Chris. Good to be here. Um, Chris, I want to start with you. Uh, and let's just go with some basics so everyone's on the same page. I mean, what is artificial intelligence? I mean, sort of, you know, frame our discussion for us. What is this, this AI? Sure, happy to. Um, so AI is a branch of computer science. It, it seeks to develop um, intelligent um machines that can perform uh, essentially a math equation that it takes in information and the information that it takes in, it could be pictures. So that branch of AI is called computer vision, like your facial recognition software, or it could take in, you know, written or spoken text. And that branch of AI is called natural language processing. And that's really what Amazon Alexa or chat GPT are. Um, or more commonly, um, it takes in single discrete data points. So if you think about baseball, you know, they've been using AI for a long time in baseball. If you saw the movie Moneyball, you know, you could feed into an, an AI system 
you know, a pitcher's ERA, the batting order, the weather, and thousands of other data points. And then it uses, you know, complex statistical equations to answer a question. So you could feed in every baseball game ever played and say, you know, what's the probability that the Twins beat the Reds today? So in medicine, similarly, you could put in information about every patient ever treated in your health system. And then you can use it um, in the future when you're seeing a new patient and you're asking a question, you know, does this person have cancer, for example? It can output, you know, based on every person that's ever been treated um, in your system, what's the probability that person has cancer? And that can be a valuable additional piece of information that a doctor could use along with all of the other pieces of information they have to help make a diagnosis. Um, you know, it can, it can also serve as a safeguard to help reduce the chance that a doctor doesn't miss a diagnosis. And we call that AI-enabled decision support. Uh, Sinan, anything to add to this uh, description, this uh, definition of AI? I would go beyond that and say, you know, I think a lot of the use cases that Dr. Tignelli is talking about are definitely top of mind, and we're seeing them come out right now, but also really exciting developments in unsupervised machine learning, which you can think of as instead of sort of training an algorithm to give you an output of interest and of clinical impact, to think about, you know, an intelligent algorithm looking at data at a scale that we as humans cannot typically process it and then identify new insights that we may not be able to. And a really exciting example of that very recently was the identification of anosmia or the loss of sense of smell as a very unique symptom that highlighted COVID infection um, as early as the spring of 2020 when folks were looking for a symptomatic differentiator of COVID relative to a common cold. So that was a really exciting example of how even looking at data with sort of fresh eyes um, and not sort of the classic supervised machine learning approach that Dr. Tignanelli was talking about can open up a lot of new possibilities. And, you know, within all of the different uh, types of data that Dr. Tignanelli mentioned, there's also been a lot of interest and a lot of excitement around generative AI uh, space, in particular in natural language processing, where, you know, now we have entities that can nearly pass the Turing test meaning that we as humans can't tell that we're actually talking to an algorithm rather than another human. Okay. And the ramifications of that in medicine are, are going to be really exciting. Okay, so that leads to, to my next question, and then I'm going to get to, uh, get to a caller. And a question for both of you. I'll start with you, uh, Sinan. You know, medicine, healthcare, technology, I mean, there, that's, that's been a long-term story, advances in technology. Is this, you know... Uh, is this truly a revolutionary technology when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to medicine? Or is it, um, you know, another tool in a long-term history? I don't know if this is a good example, but say like the MRI. You know, the MRI really was a technological advance. It made some differences, but I wouldn't call it a revolution. So how are you looking at how big is AI when it comes to healthcare? Sinan? I don't think its impact can be overstated. I do think we're in the midst of the revolution. I know people have been saying that for years, even some have been saying it for decades. There were visionaries doing computer vision research in, in very similar ways to the kinds of algorithms that are now used clinically. 20 or 30 years ago, there were folks looking at electrocardiography data, electroencephalography data. So those are brain uh, signals, um, electrophysiologic signals, folks looking at those signals and getting insights from them 30 years ago. 
Now, what's really changed from then till now, of course, the algorithms have really improved with deep learning, but I think really it's the era of computing we're in where, you know, we've really democratized access to things like cloud computing and GPUs that make it very, very easy for anyone anywhere on earth to train and run these algorithms. So we now have, you know, from my work at Hikma Health, which is a tech nonprofit working with countries around the world where, you know, sometimes in their healthcare systems, they wouldn't typically have access to a lot of resourcing. We actually see them using AI and ML in really, really creative ways to basically fill gaps in staffing or service. So I'm really excited to see AI ML come into its own in this wave where it's going to really be able to impact people at scale around the world. And Chris, same question to you. I mean, is this really going to revolutionize healthcare or is it just, uh, you know, it's another step, a good step, but another step in a long-term story about uh, we're making an addition to our technological toolkit? Yeah, I think, you know, as was mentioned before, um, we have had um, people attempting to do predictive analytics for a long time in healthcare. And early we used very rudimentary uh, methods to do these predictive analytics, like scoring systems or very basic uh, algorithms. Now what's really changed is the amount of information that we could feed in and process um, has really scaled um, exponentially. And that's going to allow us to, or at least the hope is that that's going to allow us to make far more accurate and far more reaching uh, uh, predictions than we, we were able to make um, historically. So I do think that there's a, a bright light um, for AI, but there's also a lot of uh, a risk and things that we need to worry about with this uh, uh, additional power that AI has over our kind of more historic way of uh, doing predictive analytics. And I want to get to those risks, but first I want to, let's go to the phone lines and let's go to Debbie and Debbie is in Knife River. And what's your observation or question, Debbie? So um, I am really excited about this um, AI in um, making decisions, uh, particularly I'm a retired physician and uh, I did develop uh, an illness um, uh, that um, fairly um, careful decision-making as far as medications go. And um, I was speaking with one of my uh, docs and, and they were recommending uh, medication uh, based on, you know, general statistics, but they couldn't get down to the minute levels uh, because, you know, I've had several tests that I figured if you could add them all up together, you could come with a more precise um, answer as to whether or not the the treatment that was recommended would be helpful or not. And, um, again, the physicians uh, saying we just don't have the studies to do that. However, um, because I do do a lot of my own... <coughs> excuse me, my own research, um, um, uh, I did uh, find an article just, I think it was as, as of February of 23, using artificial intelligence as far as an uh, algorithm, um, putting in all of the tests that I was having for the, the, the early cancer as for, to determine whether or not it would be helpful or not to go with the, the, the usual treatment. And um, I found it to be uh, just really exciting that there was something in there that could take into account 18 different tests, hmm. put them together, and come up with a statistical uh, uh, analysis of the chances of doing well versus uh, with the medications versus not. 
Um, so I thought oh. it was pretty exciting. Well, that's very cool. Uh, thank you very much for, for calling in with, with your experience. And uh, Sinan, your reaction? Thank you, Debbie, for sharing that. That's exactly, I think, really highlights the promise of of AI applications in medicine. And I think, you know, the first wave, a lot of the innovation that's been done in the last 10 years, you'll see um, from, you know, early identification of sepsis to a lot of the, you know, computer vision algorithms applied to radiology are basically helping make basically binary decisions that, you know, we can make with more certainty and potentially earlier in life-saving ways. That's not to minimize the impact of those of those algorithms. But now we're getting into an era, especially in oncology, in autoimmune and other areas where it's often difficult and no two illnesses will play out exactly alike. So to truly personalize the patient's care and come up with a paradigm of care that really will will, will be optimal for that patient and, and her illness, AI, we haven't even scratched the surface of what it can do from leveraging the vast data that we have from all the other patients with related illnesses and increasingly the very rich multimodal data, you know, from all of the clinical notes we have to all the structured data in the electronic health record system, the EHR, to typically now genomic data, imaging data, uh, physiologic data. We have a very, very rich data picture now of every patient. And as Dr. Tignelli was saying, where we are now in computing, we're in a position where we can leverage that data and very quickly render better decisions. And the most exciting part of your story, Debbie, which I love, is that you were able, yes, you're a former physician yourself, but any patient could go and theoretically make use of that. Now, there's a lot of promise in that, but also a lot of challenges to make sure that that plays out ethically, which I look forward to talking about later today. And let's go to uh, let's go to Richard in, uh, let's see, Richard, you're in Lakeville. And uh, Richard, what is your what is your observation or thought? Well, my consideration, um, I'm, I'm on the patient end of the stick. So my considerations there are, and as you mentioned, AI allows you to go into a binary format or a digital type format as compared to what I'm concerned with in the fact that uh, we can gain a lot of information from analytical tests, blood tests, serum tests, uh, urine tests, whatever. Um, and we we can quantify that real easily. But there's also a set of symptoms that still require uh, the patient to have a direct one-on-one uh, conversation with the doctor because consider them more analog. They're more subjective. They're the things that the patient senses uh, or feels um, as compared to what can be quantified in a test. Uh, my concern there is that, yes, I understand what you've just uh, explained, and it makes sense. I used to own three IT companies. Um, but the uh, the bottom line is that until that sort of data, that analog data can be, that, that sensory data that the patient has can be quantified, uh, I'm just at a lack of understanding why, how that's beneficial until enough people have been, have gone through that system, and I'm hopefully that that'll be included in, in the programming. Now, I'm really glad, Richard, you, you called in with it. I think you sort of hit on a, a concern so many people share. And so, um, Chris, what is your reaction to Richard's worry? Yeah, Richard, I think you share a, a very real worry. Um, you know, this is kind of the loss of the physical exam um, kind of from the inclusion uh, in with AI. Um, you know, AI can take in the labs and vitals and all of those things and 
potentially in the future, AI might also uh, analyze the spoken conversation between a physician and their patient. Um, but it, it might not include some of those other um, things, what the physician is seeing or, or what they're observing within their uh, physical exam. So I think that as these models get developed, those are things that are going to have to be thought of. How do they get integrated into um, AI? But, you know, we really are just at the tip of the iceberg right now. And um, we are developing uh, uh, systems to, um, at least in our program for clinical AI at University of Minnesota, to um, kind of take these older scoring systems that we use. So um, if I go in and meet someone and they're thinking about having surgery, you know, we're trying to determine what are the risks of complications after surgery. Right now, they use rather antiquated scoring systems. They assign you get a certain amount of points if you have this and a certain amount of points if you have this, for example. And that allows us to kind of calculate or, or provide to you a risk of having a certain complication after surgery. AI is at least letting us take these current systems and move them into more advanced ones that are, that are more accurate. So it's kind of a step, uh, a step moving in the right direction, but it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. It's definitely not replacing the clinician from the picture. And Sinan? Uh, I would agree. I think, you know, there's always going to be a role for the physician or the clinician, and it's just a question of what they're spending their time doing. And if you look at already the first generative AI applications, they're basically trying to obviate the need for clinicians to sit there and spend two to three hours of so-called pajama time after their clinical day, (laughs) where they sit there in their pajamas at home, writing their clinical notes instead of having dinner with their families. And so I think a lot of clinicians, especially with the burnout we saw of COVID, this is a very uncontroversial application, um, you know, in in terms of the relative risk to the patient. It's basically doing something that often is outsourced to medical scribes in India, Australia, or elsewhere. So it's, I, I think that's where we're starting. And if you look at where we're going, if we run to where the ball will be, I do believe that we will get there, Richard. We'll get to a point where we can get more than just documentation as insights from a conversation that is had between a patient and a provider. Now that conversation is sacrosanct. I think that that's why a lot of us went into medicine is because of that beautiful therapeutic relationship. And that's always going to be the driver of medicine. Now the question is just how much can AI enhance and augment that supporting the patient and the provider as they interact. And uh, Chris, I went to, oh, it was probably two months ago, I went to a AI conference and uh, 1,300 people signed up, probably 1,000 people showed up. And the moment that everyone sort of gasped was during a discussion about AI programs. This was generative AI programs hallucinating. And, you know, there was a fairly dis- uh, long discussion about the risk of hallucination with some of these programs. And so you put halluc- hallucination in AI and healthcare together, and that kind of uh, stops me. Yeah, this is a very real thing as well. Um, you know, I asked, uh, we, we write a lot of research grants, and I asked ChatGPT, hey, can you find me a, a research grant for trauma artificial intelligence? And it literally made up two grants that didn't exist. It had references into them, and when you click the references, it took you to tuberculosis and a pediatrics grant. So this is absolutely a, a, an issue with current artificial intelligence, but I think that over time, this is, and we're really specifically speaking about generative AI. Right. I think that over time, these are going to be things that um, you know researchers 
are going to have to develop methods to uh, improve this. And, you know, at least in healthcare today, I'm not seeing any examples of live generative um, AI solutions that, that we're using in actual clinical practice. Um, at least it's been my experience. I'm curious you're seeing on, but, um, uh, but yeah, this is the most important thing I think is being aware of this issue and developing a strategy to uh, address this in the future. And uh, Chris uh, asked, what is your experience seen on? What is yours? What is your experience? Yeah, thanks, Chris. It's really interesting. I'm starting to see people already using it. I don't know if they're supposed <laughs> to be or not, but there are clinician friends of mine and they're not using it for basically any clinical know-how. Uh, but I think, you know, we all know of certain patient relationships where there's long emails, lots of questions. And what shocked me the most about ChatGPT in particular is, uh, you know, even relative to, let's say, MedPalm 2, which is Google's model, which is known for, you know, achieving 80 plus percent scores better than most doctors on the medical licensing exam, because it's been trained specifically on medical, a uh, corpus of medical um, information. Um, what, sh- what shocked me about GPT-4, though, was that the empathy scores that it was getting were generally higher than clinicians. So when clinicians are strapped for time, and they're sitting there trying to write, you know, a long, uh, you know, four page email to a patient who, you know, maybe is an oncology patient who's terminal, and they have this correspondence going, I do know clinicians that are using GPT in that capacity. Now, I don't know anyone that's using any of these tools for anything clinical or scientific, because I do believe, you know, as Chris shared, the reputation, and it's a merited reputation is that it's just not reliable, they make up citations, they, as you said, hallucinate, which is very scary, especially in a field like obstetrics, we're working with high-risk pregnant patients. These are very vulnerable patients. There's already a lot of misinformation. So given where the field is today, uh, that's, you know, wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. That said, again, if we go, if we just kind of look to where the ball is going, there are already companies out there like Perplexity AI that have somewhat solved this problem and said, look, we will retrain on a medical corpus. We'll guarantee that the, we will anchor our model in citations, that it will only cite real science, real papers. And now, so that's a, that part of the problem is solved. The next part is how accurately is it reflecting the information in that actual paper or actual grant? And that's where I see the next five years, we will iteratively solve that problem together. And so I want to reach out to anyone listening to this program. If you have any questions about artificial intelligence and medicine, you know, give us a call. And particularly if you work in healthcare, I'd love to learn what is the, the conversation around AI in your workplace. And so let's go, yeah, let's take uh, Emily in Minneapolis. And Emily, what is your question? Hi. Um, so I was wondering what, what is being done to mitigate any issues with input data Humans make errors in putting information into a machine, um, any kind of machine. If there's an error, then all the following stuff isn't, you know, doesn't have a premise that makes sense. So what's being done to make sure that that's not a problem? I like that question. That's a great one. Uh, Chris? Yeah, so um, at least in our program for clinical AI, we actually, um, when we develop uh, um, our databases that we use, our AI-ready databases, they go through a process where we have a team of analysts and clinicians um, review that data. We make sure that input data is within you know, a certain normal physiologic range. Um, when we generate variables, we double-check them. We have someone actually double-check them with the medical record to make sure that they're accurate. So there are a bunch of checks and balances in, in generating what we call our training data that you're going to train that model on. 
And uh, same question, uh, you know, give you a chance to, to talk to Emily uh, Sinon, because I imagine with, um, you know, particularly with pregnancies for, for moms that are at risk or at-risk moms, uh, input, good input data is critical. Absolutely, Chris. And thank you, Emily, for highlighting this. You know, probably a lot of folks know the saying garbage in, garbage out, broadly applicable in life, but nowhere as much as in AIML. And, um, you know, in particular, we think a lot about bias in, bias out. And, you know, we are really tackling the maternal health crisis in this country. And if you look at on whose shoulders this crisis is landing, it's black women and native women in this country who have, you know, two to four X worse outcomes, depending where you're looking. In the state of Minnesota, a native woman is six to eight X more likely to suffer a complication of pregnancy. So when we think about serving these populations, we want to make sure that the data coming in is mitigated of all biases. And that can be selection bias, like who are we actually looking at? That can be racial bias in terms of how the data is collected or presented. And then of course, to your point, Emily, there's a data quality issue where you know patients can always have typos, physicians can have typos. So if someone enters that their blood pressure was you know, 1200 over 80, that's very different and should be processed very differently than 120 over 80. And so basically having quality checks on the data inputs and throwing immediate flags if something seems out of pattern or out of bounds before, you know, pumping it into an algorithm and automatically telling the patient, wow, you have very high risk of X. You know, that's that's where I believe the quality control aspect of this is very important. And all the algorithms that we're developing at Delphina, we are putting all of these controls in place to make sure that the application of any kind of AIML will, you know, be bounded such that if someone is entering information that could not be accurate or is unlikely to be accurate, we are not giving them a, a an output that'll lead to erroneous decisions. And at the end of the day, really, it's about delivering the output in a way that makes sense too. So the same question you had about the inputs, Emily, I would say equally apply to the outputs. We got to make sure that clinicians understand and patients understand what does it mean that you may benefit from daily aspirin to mitigate hypertension risk? And what does an AUROC area under the ROC curve of 85% mean or sensitivity of 85%? And that's been, you know, a major challenge, I think, even with clinicians, even physicians, you know, I think for the last several decades, we didn't really anchor so much in the fields of biostatistics, epidemiology, certainly not machine learning. So I think as these applications come online and you have these very intelligent clinicians that have been really steeped in physiology and biochemistry, how do we get them to understand more about the new tools that they're using the same way they have for the last 30 years for a very different toolkit? Let's go to Mano in Rosemont. Mano? Yes, that's me. Good morning. Good morning. What is your uh, question? Well, I'm a woman, and um, I know how in the American healthcare system, a lot of women, and especially my sisters of color, a lot of times their symptoms and their issues get dismissed as, you know, just maybe you need to lose some weight, and, oh, are you sure you're not just anxious? Are you sure you're not just imagining things? And how it takes a lot of women years, if not decades, to get a proper diagnosis for the mm. issues they've been having. So how are we making sure that, you know, any AI only being able to work with a database, uh, all these misdiagnoses um, not going into the decision making of the AI and just perpetuating the issue more? Ah, I love this question. Thank you so much for, for calling in. Uh, I'll start with you, uh, Sinan. 
Thank you for that question, Manoa. This is top of mind for us, given the space that we're in and the populations we're serving. And, you know, I'll just start by saying that the experiences of this population, I can't possibly fathom. You know, I've served some patients from these populations. And, you know, when I was in medical school, it was just 10 years ago, we were looking at dermatology pictures and they were all of white patients. So I think, you know, we all have, we all carry our biases with us, but at the end of the day, I see AIML while there is a tremendous concern that's rightfully merited about potentially amplifying bias, it's also a great opportunity to train ethically an algorithm that renders equitable performance. And that's exactly what we set out to do at Delphina, where looking at the maternal health crisis, which has many causes, and uh, the disparities also have many causes, some of which are mitigable by uh, you know, an algorithm and some of which are not, we are taking this algorithm as an opportunity to say, let's serve all of these women, particularly women of color, who have been ignored by facets of the healthcare system. And, you know, Serena Williams' story in particular is really heart-wrenching, where here's a very prominent and wealthy Black woman, and even that amount of wealth and stature and achievement in life, where all of her nurses, all of her physicians knew her, uh, it wasn't enough to get them to listen when she was saying, look, guys, I have this pain in my chest. I'm pretty sure it's something serious. And it ended up being a life-threatening pulmonary embolus. Um, and she really had to forcefully advocate overriding her own staff to get them to do the scan that found it. So that story is always top of mind to us. And this was you know, just a few years ago that this is the healthcare system in which us you know, algorithmic creators are you know, putting out our creations. And so making sure that on the one hand, the inputs are inclusive and making sure, you know, in our user research that what are the things that are important to you and, and you as a patient? And, you know, we work with a lot of doulas that have served in these communities for decades, serving pregnant folks who didn't feel like they were being served by the allopathic healthcare system, by, you know, clinicians, OBGYNs or certified nurse midwives. And so bringing it all together where we want to give folks the right level of clinical care that they need. We also realized we need to meet them where they are, give them the right level of social care. And if we're not getting the right data inputs that are important to them, if they're not being heard by us and by the algorithms that we're developing, it's all for nothing. And the output, as I said previously, is equally important, making sure that when we render the insights back to them, it's in a culturally competent way. So we have the app in English and Spanish and culturally native bilingual providers so that whenever these patients are getting an insight, whether it is a reassuring one that you can continue on a low risk, uh, you know, care course that your provider has set, or, you know, your provider wants you to do something different because of a change in your risk profile, it will be appropriately communicated in a way that enhances and augments the relationship of that patient with her providers. And Chris, I imagine that, you know, uh, with the uh, the program for clinical AI at the University of Minnesota Medical School, that her question is at a core of a lot of the conversations that you're having. Absolutely, Chris. And thank you, Sinan, for that comment and Mano for this very important question. Yeah. Um, this is a very, very serious concern and something that I agree is top of mind. Uh, researchers are spending their entire careers trying to, to fix these issues. And I mentioned, you know, We've had these prior scoring systems and, and other approaches in healthcare, and those also have bias. And these AI systems are unfortunately also going to have bias. So how do we fix this problem? And one of the things that we're doing at mHealth Fairview is that we are an early system to develop an AI governance framework. So a lot of regulation around 
how are we approaching these algorithms? Um, here you have multiple people with different expertise that formally review any AI tools that might enter clinical care. Um, we uh, evaluate who was it trained on, how is that data curated for who was trained on, how did it perform in that previous data, what was the demographics of the patients that were it was trained on. Before it even gets turned on, it runs in the background, <clears throat> run the AIs in the background for a period of time, and then look at how did it perform in people? How did it perform by subgroup? How did it perform by race, ethnicity, gender, age, sex, et cetera? Um, and then also, once it's kind of running, continually evaluating. You can't just test it one time, like, oh, okay, it worked really well in November of 2022. You have to have a process that continually is evaluating these and monitoring it. But that's just within a single health system. And a lot of health systems are, are spinning up these regulatory frameworks, but we also need regulation at a much larger level. I think that one of the first things that needs to happen is everyone needs to acknowledge this is an issue. Um, a next thing that needs to happen is that researchers and funding agencies should really state that our prime directive is the creation of unbiased, generalizable, and explainable AI. There needs to be additional funding to support computer science, and other researchers to develop new methods to improve algorithm fairness and reduce bias. There also needs to be standardized, rigorous approaches um, for how we actually assess model fairness and bias. Um, there needs to be standardized approaches for how does a model get validated? Does it, um, does it actually get external validation at other institutions? And how does it perform when it sees other populations that it was trained on? Um, and then all of these approaches need to be adopted by journal editors, the FDA, funding agencies, and healthcare systems that are going to implement them. And then the last piece to just add is that there needs to be transparency. So all of these models and their performance needs to be transparent and um, available to patients, clinicians, researchers, and health systems. That could be on like the FDA's webpage, or it could be on medical society's webpage, or some other platform that post this. I'm, I'm the chair of the American College of Surgeons Health Information Technology Committee. And one of our tasks is actually to curate uh, the AI algorithms in surgery and, uh, you know, put that, um, the, um, their metrics and such on the webpage kind of as a landing zone or place people can go to, to look at that information so that it is transparent. All right, let's go to Kara uh, in Ham Lake. And Kara, what is your what is your question or observation? Yes, thank you so much for taking my call. I uh, am a uh, primary primary care uh, physician. I'm a pediatrician. I've been working with Alina for over 25 years, and my organization, I think, has done a really good job of using um, computer technology in general with our electronic medical record, and is actively looking at using. Uh, uh, AI technologies to help provide uh, better better care for our patients. Uh, my concern is that with the corporatization of medicine that is happening in the United States, um, this AI technology, although I think it can be a wonderful thing for our patients, I also see this as a potential way for uh, my, my organization or other, other organizations as a way for us to see more patients and get more patients through. You know, if, if AI can make, be the decision maker for me, um, my organization might see that, oh, that's a way for 
for Dr. Larson to see more patients in a day, which adds to more pajama time for me in the evening. And primary care in particular is is really the relationship um, between patients and medicine. I mean, we're the people that patients come in to see. And my concern is that we're going to lose more of that relationship um, with this technology because of the pressures that are being put on us by the organization and the corporatization of medicine. Well, thank you for for calling in this question. And uh, I'd like both of you to address it because it seems to me, you know, healthcare is under a lot of financial pressures. And, you know, there are these wonderful things AI could do in terms of doctor-patient relationship. But as Kara is saying, the other thing is simply do is just let's speed up the assembly line and let's just move as quickly as possible. So Sinan, I mean, speeding up the assembly line ends up being the result of AI. Well, I think that's that's a very fair concern, and I do think with the it's I would say that's not really a problem of AI, but a problem of our healthcare system. Whether you're making decisions manually or augmented by AI, I think the financial pressures you just described they're happening today without AI in, in play. I've been at OB practices where you know they're seeing 30, 35 patients a day, and there's still pressure to see more volume because they're on a fee for service basis. They grow their volume, they grow their top line, and it you know that's those are where the incentives are. So I think we do have, I think AI again presents actually an opportunity to flip the script and say, look, you know, especially in obstetrics where, you know, there have been attempts at value-based care previously, but they sort of fell short because while you saw this beautiful realignment of the payers and providers to say, look, it's pregnancy, let's give moms and babies the healthiest start in life. Let's align on outcomes and let's all pull in the same direction instead of fighting over how much to reimburse for a particular procedure. And, you know, that early initiative about 10 years ago fell flat in some geographies because one, there weren't even enough OBs. There were OB deserts, which have only gotten worse throughout the last 10 years. And two, where the OB was able to see the patient, she didn't have the right tools. She wasn't equipped to necessarily do better. And so with tools like the ones we're developing at Delphina now coming online, we believe that a reorientation of the healthcare system to truly adopt a population outcomes-driven approach to financially operating will obviate a lot of the need to grow volume if you're a practice or you know squeeze margins if you're a plan. And we are excited to be part of that because I believe 10 years from now, I think we all know the current, I mean, you know better than anyone, Chris, that this is unsustainable as we, as we scale as a country with too few doctors and more and more pressure, this can't keep going on. And I see AIML as one very powerful potential tool for the policy folks to redesign our healthcare system and the financial incentives appropriately. And Chris, I have to tell you, I I went to uh, uh, Dr. Bloom, a play about burnout and the audience was all doctors and nurses. And the thing that got the biggest reaction was about the speed up and the paperwork. And I think there is this, this sense that, yeah, AI's got all this problem, but all this promise. But what it's really going to do is just speed up the paperwork and more paperwork and make that assembly line move faster. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was that was the first thing I was really thinking about is imagine you go in, you see your patient, 
Um, and then when you log into your, um, the, to do your charting later and during your pajama time, the no template is already written for you and you just have to proofread it. The billing is automatically kind of pulled out the diagnosis codes, et cetera. So I do see it, um, improving efficiency. Um, and I do see it hopefully reducing clinician, uh, burnout with a lot of the administrative tasks that we have to do, you know, in the hours after clinic. Um, but you know, if you think about those tasks, that, probably won't reduce your time in clinic. So it may not translate to, um, at least for that example, uh, additional patients seen during the, the clinic time. But as you know, more and more AI efficiencies are deployed that could be um, used within the clinic, yes, it may result in a couple more patients or the ability to see a few more patients during your clinic hours. Um, but that would also improve access to care. You know, there is a, a large, as we've mentioned, you know, multiple times, um, there's a large shortage of doctors and many of us have called up to get an appointment with the physician and, and told, you know, next available appointment is three months down the road. Um, uh, so we do have a problem with access to care. And if AI can improve efficiencies and allow us to deliver um, similar superior care, but more efficiency efficiently um, with less administrative uh, burden, I think that that would be a win-win. Okay. Let's go to, um, Let's go to Kumar in Minneapolis, and what is your what is your uh, what is your insider experience, Kumar? Oh, hi. This is uh, Dr. Kumar Balani. I'm an anesthesiologist at the University of Minnesota, and I know AI has been here for many years. My concern is: Are there any ethical issues that we should be concerned about uh, with the use of AI and machine learning? And is there a uh, you know a particular ethical issue that you are particularly concerned about or that you feel, you know, needs to be focused on? It's mainly to do with uh, proper diagnosis and proper care. Uh, you know, if we rely on AI too much, then we may not be having the correct, you know, diagnosis and this may lead to improper care. Okay, so thank you very much for calling in, and and Chris, this is one of one of the the, the themes that 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 has emerged. But the, this ethical issue about um, the human interaction and the quality of the care. Yeah, I mean, thank you, uh, Dr. Balani, for this question. Um, I mean, this is um, this is uh, really why one of points to why there's a need for governance and, and regulation around AI. Um, a lot of the AI that we're developing in our program for clinical AI is really around uh, physician-assisted diagnosis, whereas uh, instead of AI autonomously, you know, on its own making a diagnosis or, you know, giving a treatment recommendation to a patient, I think it's it's very important still, and I, I don't think see this changing any time in the short term, uh, that the physician is is very much still engaged in the picture and uses the AI's predictions um, as just an additional piece of information, like an, a white blood cell count or a lab or, or something else that they might be uh, uh, receiving. So I don't think we're t- talking yet about completely getting the physician out of that picture. And Sinan? I agree 100%. I think we need to adopt a more a more detailed guideline than what has been currently put out. I agree with all of the principles from the EU's or the European commission's ethics for uh, ethical guidelines for trustworthy AI. The Biden administration just put out their blueprint for AI bill of rights generally. But I do think in healthcare, we do need to drill down and come together and say, 
this is what makes this work. The principles we all agree on that AI algorithms need to be safe, effective, and equitable. You know, data privacy needs to be maintained at all times. And then that patient autonomy that a patient needs to be informed if we as clinicians intend to use an automated system as part of their care, and they should be able to opt out for any reason. The same way they can opt out of a blood transfusion, they should be able to opt out of an automated clinician um, or an automated clinical decision support system being involved in their care. And so I think drilling down from the ethical principles that broadly we in healthcare have all agreed on and turning that into very concrete guidelines. And I love the idea from Dr. Tignanelli for full transparency, algorithmically showing the world, this is how this performs the same way a surgical robot would have to show, well, this is how many, you know, misses we have in a million cases. So I believe we'll get there. And at Delfino, we're here to be part of the solution. I think a lot of our industry colleagues agree that it'll be better for us all as an industry, as a society, and as a healthcare system to adopt some of those guidelines. So this may be a slightly offbeat question, but uh, as we're getting near near the end of the end of the hour, I go visit my doctor, um, primary care physician, or whatever, whatever specialist. What should I ask some questions about AI and how they're using AI in the treatment of me, uh, Chris? Yeah, I think it's a great idea to ask them, but I'll, I'll be honest. I think that if you ask a physician, you know, are you using AI? Nine out of ten, maybe even ten out of ten, will say no. Um, just because, again, we're really at the infancy of AI in healthcare. There's been an explosion of publications in AI and FDA approvals for new AI-enabled uh, uh, technologies in the last couple of years. But there's a translation gap of those actually getting into care and being used widespread across the country. So I do think it's very uh, it's a great idea to have that conversation with your clinician um, uh, if, if they are using AI at any point um, uh, in your care. And I, I love that idea of uh, the opt-out um, for autonomous AI when we do get to there. Um, but uh, um, I think that most of the, I think most of what you would hear right now is that, no, they're not using AI as part of their daily practice. And Sheila, I want to ask you, uh, we just got about a minute left here, but I want to ask you, is there, are there a lot of companies like yours being formed around the promise that AI uh when it comes to medicine and healthcare around, around AI, are we seeing a lot of entrepreneurship? There has been a proliferation of companies. And I think it's, you know, it's really positive because each of us is taking a different approach to a different part of the problem. And for us, you know, focused on the maternal health crisis, I truly welcome anyone that wants to solve this problem. I came from the world of neuroscience to solve what I now believe is the public health challenge of this decade following the COVID pandemic. And I think the more people that are using AI, ML in creative ways, leveraging it to solve a deeply pressing human problem for moms and babies in the US and around the world, I think that's a really positive thing. Now, I do think there's some things that industry does really well, other things that academic groups and nonprofits do really well, other things that just need to be done by the government. And I'm really excited to all come together, work together to leverage AI for the benefit of patients. Well, thank you very much. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for the people who called in. And uh, our guests were Dr. Christopher Tignanelli and Dr. Sinan Ibrahim. And uh, they answered a lot of questions about healthcare and AI. And this conversation was produced by Maya Beckstrom. So be safe, everyone. And I'm going to talk to you tomorrow about learning new skills and discovering talents.
Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.